Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for October 1st, 2020, the What We Will Know on Election Night edition. I am David Plotz in Washington, D.C. In the closet, I am joined by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from her home in New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. Hey, John. And by John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes from his home in Manhattan, New York City. Hello, John. Hello, David. Hello, Emily. On today's GabFest, Trump's taxes, the fallout from the debate, the state of the polls, what will the debate, what will Trump's taxes, what will the reshaping of the debate format mean for the race and for American democracy? Then we're going to be joined by Nate Persley, who is a leading authority on voting, on boards of elections, on how people vote, how votes are counted, and the law to tell us what we are going to know on election night and what we will not know on election night. Then the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett to be a Supreme Court justice. What kind of justice would she be? Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. If you are still feeling battered by Tuesday night, or you're still feeling battered by this week, you are not alone. This is a week that has been really extraordinary. We've had so many extraordinary weeks in the Trump presidency. This has been a real big one. The debate, the uh, shocking refusal of the president to denounce white supremacists, the shocking attack by the president on the, uh, the mechanism of the election, his claim that it's already a fraudulent election, the attempt by the president to destroy the format of the debate and the recognition that the presidential debate, next debates need to be rejiggered. All are top of mind, but also top of mind is this amazing, amazing feat of reporting by the New York Times, which obtained through some means most of the president's personal tax records and and some and other kinds of tax records over the past, what is it, 15, 18 years? 18, 18 years. Up to 2018. These tax records show an amazing pattern of tax avoidance and cheating, as well as possibly profound incompetence in business. And they are almost impossible for regular people to understand because uh, they're, they're just so complicated and what they reveal is so confusing. Listeners familiar with the highlights know that the president paid $750 a year in income tax for his cu- first couple of years as president, zero in most previous years of personal income tax. He had businesses that appear to have been run with either devilish incompetence or with the express purpose of losing money. And the express purpose of losing money, perhaps, according to people I've talked to, for the purpose of laundering money. There are a whole bunch of deeply shady payments to family members for unspecified consulting services, mysterious money that is paid to who knows where. There's an extremely suspect $72 million tax refund that the government paid Trump back. And he's now being audited around. And then there's $420 million in personal debts that are about to come due. So, John, we have been waiting for these taxes for five years. They are shocking. The uh, level of chaos, chicanery, dishonesty, and sheer kind of confusion that they reveal. The overwhelming feeling, of course, that I had is that to me, a taxpayer who has who has paid a lot of taxes, a lie paid many multiples of what Trump did in personal income taxes last year, as I'm sure you both did. It is just insulting that he goes to such efforts to cheat us out of paying for all the services the government has provided to its citizens and to the government that he presides over to have cheated them out of the, the money that 
they should have gotten. It, that was my overwhelming feeling, but maybe that wasn't your feeling. Well, I, um, I don't know what my feeling was. I, um, John Sides, uh, political scientist, points out um, in the wake of this that the studies show basically that this is something people care about, which is to say they don't like when people cheat. And what interested me about that was a lot of energy in the Republican Party and particularly energy that was um, accessed by President Trump revolves around this idea that Democrats promote policies that allow other people to cheat and get things. This is what the kind of the Obama phones myth was about. The idea that, uh, you, you know, somehow other people are kind of grafting off the federal government and I'm not getting mine or nobody's paying attention to me. And this, I feel like, is a part of that. There was some, I don't know what the evidence is now, but it certainly undermines the initial claim in 2016 from the president that he was a smart businessman. I think obviously the president's base think he's a great businessman and this is proof of his skill, which is his, you know, he's getting around paying taxes. But the key distinction you made is that it's one thing to be aggressive in your taxes. It's another to engage in activity to create fraudulent conditions to take advantage of the tax code. And that's what is is alleged here. My particular favorite was, I mean, not favorite, but my the thing that struck me particularly was the um, Westchester property that he has that he claims it's a part of the company in order to deduct the property taxes when the property tax uh, limitations of his recent tax bill skewered people with just the kinds of properties that he has found another way to hide from paying taxes on. Yeah, he says it's basically a Trump organization property, even though his family, his kids say, oh, it's a family compound, that they're using it for personal purposes. Emily, one of the distinctions I think that's important to note is that Trump, all rich people attempt to minimize their taxes. They practice tax avoidance schemes of various sorts. But at least according to what the Times revealed, this is on a much grander scale. Trump is paying far, far, far less in taxes than other kinds of rich people who are comparable to him. He is exceptionally yeah. greedy and sneaky about it. Wait, I am interested in why you're using the word confusing. I didn't think this was confusing. I thought there were three, like, big things that stood out in it. One is this is a man who has an incredibly lavish lifestyle and presents that way and is paying tiny, tiny amounts in income tax. The second is that he owes between 300 and $4 million. We don't know to whom, and it's coming due soon. And we don't know how that affects weird kind of... Um, difficult to understand policy decisions he's made in dealing with countries like Russia, Turkey, and the Philippines, places where he has big investments, and maybe that is actually driving American policy. Who knows? And then the third thing is this um, $72 million um, tax relief he took from the IRS over an Atlantic City partnership interest. So now I'm going to read because I don't have complete mastery of this facts, but there's this good piece from Daniel Shaviro in Just Security. And he says that he, as a lawyer, handled um, a tax dispute just like this for a client. And that actually, like, the law is pretty clear on this because what you're supposed to do when you owe equity, like this kind of partnership interest that has lost enormous value, if you sell it for an enormous loss, then that's only a capital loss, according to Shaviro. And the deduction you're allowed to take is limited to the sum of A, net capital gains for the year, and B, $3,000. 
you're only allowed to carry it forward at $3,000 a year normally. It's only if the investment is utterly worthless and you abandon it for zero consideration, according to Shaviro, does it become an ordinary loss. And that's how Trump categorized this loss. And that's why he took this $72 million piece of tax relief. But the thing is, he received back a 5% interest. So because Donald Trump continued to get this 5% interest, he didn't abandon this asset from Atlantic City. And he looks like wasn't entitled to the $72 million refund he took from the government. Emily, I would just wait. I I mean, that's why it's confusing, Emily. Yeah. Can I I just say two things? And also, can I say, (laughs) and also, like, I think what's confused, like, sorry, what I think is confusing is not what those three things you pointed out are very important. To me, there's a there's a fundamental existential confusion in this, which is, is Trump a really terrible businessman, which is the way the the Times presented it, which is that he's running, he owns all these businesses, they operate at a huge loss every year. And he's taking a bunch of loans out and he's still managing to float a lavish lifestyle by somehow somehow getting money out. Or there's a wholly other theory, which is he may or he may be a mediocre businessman. He's clearly not a great businessman, but that there's some significant crime that is happening. Adam Davidson has a great had a great tweet thread about the looking at one Trump golf course and they totally confounding mysterious ways they've done the accounting and taxation and valuation of that golf course, which everyone who looks at it, who's a tax expert, looks at it as like the only explanation for this is it's a form of money laundering. So is there something which isn't Trump as a bad businessman going on that explains why he is able to have all this money and not ever pay any taxes and and yet these businesses appear to be operating at huge losses? Well, I think that he works. A, he's working a scheme to go back to Emily's seventy-two million dollar refund from the IRS. The first thing is he got the refund, which means that what he's wrestling over is giving up money that's been given to him. So, at the very least, a protracted, complicated. Oh, I, I'll, I, you know, anything to hold off a judgment from the IRS is in his interest because he's gotten the seventy-two million back, as opposed to arguing for something to then get the IRS to give him the 72 million. He won in the short game. Now he's playing the long game. But that, so he's played that angle. Then he's used that angle, the $72 million dispute with the IRS, which is ongoing, as a way to shield his taxes. Because he said, I'm going to be the first president since Nixon not to release my tax returns because they're under audit. So he's using the one dispute to take care of another dispute that's in his life. Um, And so I think that's a way in which you see him using the system. And it's a way, it's sort of similarly to the way he quiets people by threatening lawsuits. He's playing the angles to take care of these various issues. And I think he just keeps doing that, at least this is what the the Times reporting makes you feel, is that he keeps doing that to kind of stay one step ahead of the tax man or, and that also is connected, it seems to me, that to to why this is, the reporting is interesting, which is that staying in office will keep him ahead of the tax man. It will keep him ahead of these debts because he's president of the United States. And so, you know, will the banks push him for the obligations he owes or will they find some way to roll it over or deal with it? Because they're dealing with the president of the United States. They're not going to like slap a notice on his door and say you're in foreclosure. And then the final thing is, Because of the position outlined by the Times, which suggests that his properties are losing a great deal of money, it then further explains why every time he goes somewhere, he stays at one of his properties. Um, I mean, he's basically doing marketing for those properties to try to put them back on their feet if you, if, uh, you follow where the Times reporting says they are. 
and taking investments from people in Russia, Turkey, and the Philippines. To my, here's my concise summary of Daniel Shapiro's point in Just Security. With these Atlantic City partnership interests, he claimed a total loss and this huge $72 million amount of tax relief or something where he took a 5% interest in the new entity that was being created. And that is not how these losses are supposed to work, according to tax lawyers. They're supposed to only be taken going forward if you have a total loss, not if you get something in exchange. And so, you know, it looks to Shaviro like Trump should lose this audit. And that goes back to your point, John, like, what does it mean to have the president under this kind of audit? And in this is this part of why he is so desperate to win the election because he has this huge potential tax bill coming due and then all these outstanding loans that like we don't know how he's going to prevent foreclosure. Well, we do know how he's going to prevent foreclosure if he's president, which is that there are going to be some quiet conversations with banks. And look, I wonder what kind of possible favors these banks are going to get, what kind of favorable tax treatment, what ways we're going to look away about problems these banks are having in other places in order that the president's loans get extended, get refinanced at some sort of favorable rate somehow, or or maybe they're bought by somebody. Maybe somebody buys these properties at a at slightly over market, and I wonder what that person's going to get out of it. We we are. It is very clear that the president will use his office to make sure that that four hundred twenty million dollars is not something he actually has to pay out because he can't because he doesn't have the cash. He can't do it. And of course, this is why it's so important for us to understand all of this. This is why hiding the tax returns to begin with is a problem, because we need to understand these connections. Well, do you think it would have mattered had we seen these in 2015, Emily? Um, that's a good question. I mean, it would have undermined a lot of his argument for both his I'm a great business person and I'm not going to have conflicts of interest going forward. So, yeah, I think it might have mattered. What do you think, John? Well, I think two things. One, as you were saying, we have to know these things. I mean, this all came out of Richard Nixon saying, you know, the American people have to know whether their president is a crook. When when Nixon released his tax returns, as I recall, it was, in fact, determined that he that he had to pay back taxes. And I think he paid something like four hundred thousand dollars back taxes, which was no small amount. And it didn't hurt him politically. Um, Interest. So then that's so that's he did pay back, though. Right, right, right. But it didn't hurt him politically. I guess the second point I would make is, um, you know, the voters knew extraordinary things about candidate Donald Trump. Um, The things he had said out loud, the things he had been heard to say on audio. Um, If they knew nothing else about him, they knew the most damaging things about him, and they still elected him. Yep. I I think that's right. I I don't think that had these taxes come out in 2015 or 2016, it would have made significant difference in the sense that I think it would have reinforced a narrative, which is, man, this is a guy who's so clever. It would have been affirming of a narrative rather than rather than contravening it. And it doesn't it seems clear, like I was reading in one of the 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 articles we were looking at, that people who support Trump believe he is a good businessman, no matter what you tell them, what evidence is presented, because his lifestyle is of a rich person. And it's very hard to dissuade people from thinking of this rich guy is a good businessman because he presents, he tells you all the time. And if you are inclined to believe it, you'll just continue to believe it. So I don't think it was, but I don't then think you the might evidence would have... You might think he owes more than $750 a year. And maybe it's a little disconcerting that he's deducting $70,000 for his hair. Yeah, it's, yes, it's for you and me, it's disgusting and vile. But I'm not sure that, that it was, that for the people who were going to vote for him, that that is a shaker. I, 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 there's nothing that makes me think they matter politically right now. 
Right. Uh, but I mean, as a citizen, we should be, yeah, it's horrifying to think that the president owes $420 million to God knows who, and that the president is is malforming and misshaping the IRS to protect a, a tax interest of his own. That is truly disturbing, but I'm not sure that it's, and, and John, maybe you have a better sense of this. I'm not sure it's disturbing at the level of this will affect the race on the margins. Yeah, I mean, I think you could, given the the, the freneticism and haze and, um, you know, and, and all kinds of uh, intervening events, including the debates, um, you can imagine uh, that this wouldn't actually matter that much in, with respect to the campaign. I mean, what it d- does do is it's one more, you know, he already is is trudging up the hill behind Joe Biden, beset by uh, stories about calling, uh, you know, uh, fallen soldiers losers and suckers and and then a bad debate performance. This is one more brick in the backpack that he's got to lug up the hill. So in that sense, it's it's, you know, takes him off his game. He has to talk about in his debate response to the question about the seven hundred and fifty dollars when the country already thoroughly, you know, his his honesty and trustworthiness ratings are in the 30s, I think, still. So when he speaks now, it's different than when he spoke before. And so when he makes excuses, people pretty much think he's not telling the truth, if you believe those polls. So it could matter, but I think uh, there's just so much going on, else going on, it's hard to know. I must say one other thing is that we talked on the uh, special after the debate about the white supremacy remarks, and the Republican leaders have now had to call out Donald Trump three different times for being slow-footed on on uh, calling out white supremacy slow for a footed. person. John. What's that? Slow-footed? He's not slow-footed. He's like, he's... Well, he, I, if you let me finish the, if, if you let me finish the, the sentence, in the debate, Wallace said, would you call out white supremacists? And he said, yes. So he didn't say nothing. The point is that that's totally and completely and a thousand percent not meeting the moment. So the point is, w- what the what the Republicans have said is, you know, they've they've had a mild slap on the wrist about this. My point is that that it causes the whole party to have to behave in a certain way to cover up for what he's what he's been doing with respect to the taxes, to minimize it to as um, North Dakota uh, Senator Kevin Kramer once when told that, that Trump was going to have the G7 at the, the uh, his uh, golf course in, in Miami said, well, it may seem careless politically, but on the other hand, there's a tremendous integrity in his boldness and his transparency. In other words, people have to say crazy stuff to explain this away. And so that's a way in which, just like with the white supremacy stuff, it's splashing up on lots of other people in the party, which creates political damage outside of the president's fortunes. Before we leave this topic, well, it's not really this topic, (laughs) before we leave, but we're we're sort of talking about the state of the race. John uh, and the debate, the debate obviously was this rat fuck of of an evening because the president just refused to behave in anything other than a childish and grotesquely bullying way. And it sounds like the Commission on Presidential Debates is going to make some changes as we're as we are taping on Thursday morning that appears to be happening. Have you do you know what is going to happen? Do you have any sense about what they're going to do to alter the format of the next two presidential debates? We think there's going to be something like a cutting off the microphone or something like that, which is an extraordinary thing because the president was unable to control himself because the president was so honking and interrupting. They're having to rewrite the rules, which is just an extraordinary thing in the first place. Second thing is, you know, basically the, the Commission on Presidential Debates has, dis, has discovered norms and that they don't sometimes work. 
But as a practical matter, it's real tricky uh, it, for the moderator. It adds just one more thing because sometimes when somebody interrupts, it's a useful interjection. Sometimes in the nature of, as you and as the three of us do, um, shh, you actually, shh, you know, stop. <laughs> you actually learn something through an exchange. So how do you know when to hit the button? Um, it'll be interesting to see how they figure that out. Some wise person was suggesting to me that maybe they could fade the other person out. And was that you? Didn't I make that suggestion in the debate? Maybe uh, that's right. Post, but but <laughs> how do you fade if, the, if what they're basically doing is interjecting? Like an yeah. interjection is intrinsically a thing that happens very rapidly, very exclamatorily, and is quick and is over. Like there's, there's no time to fade that. It's not that he, it's not that Trump interrupts and goes on Fidel Castro like perorations for four hours. No, he did that too. Actually, yeah, Both. he did. <laughs> you um, have a point though, and now I'm interrupting you successfully. <laughs> yes, but will the the GFS listeners who complain every time I interrupt you note that you interrupted me? No. They no, won't. I win the interruption you get game. To interrupt. Uh, Slate Plus members get bonus segments on the Gabfest and other Slate podcasts, and they also get all kinds of other benefits of membership. And at this incredibly difficult, important time in American life, Slate is doing great journalism. They're doing great coverage of the election, of some of the issues around voting, of some of the issues around race and equity, and the national protests. And your support as a Slate Plus member makes a real difference in the quality of what Slate can do and, and what it can convey to you as a reader and a listener. And we really appreciate your support. And you can go to slate.com slash plus to become a Slate Plus member today if you want. And we will have a bonus segment today where we're going to talk about what if we were running a business into the ground to gain tax to, to as part of a tax dodge, how would we do it? What business would we would we destroy in order to gain some advantage on our taxes if we were a lavishly rich, wealthy person who could afford to do such a thing? So go to slate.com slash GabFest plus. This episode of the GabFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame. And I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. We are joined now by Nate Persley. He is the James B. McClatchy Professor of Law at Stanford Law School, and he is a an expert in American election law, what is called the law of democracy around issues such as voting rights, political parties, campaign finance, redistricting, and election administration. As you can imagine, these are important issues right now. Nate, thanks for joining us. 
on the GabFest. And I want to start with a piece you co-wrote this week for the Wall Street Journal, which I think for, for people who read it may have tamped down a lot of the fear that that some people, especially on the left, have about how chaotic this election could be. Were you trying to tamp down fear? And what were you what did what what was the point of the piece, which was sort of like what we're gonna know on election night? Yes, we were trying to uh, tamp down fear. I think that it is possible we are going to have an election meltdown scenario. It is possible that we have all of the regime-threatening action that people are worried about, but that is uh, less likely <laughs> than not. And I think that we need to be sort of clear-eyed about what the likely outcomes are. And most importantly, we wanted to emphasize that on election night, we will know a lot uh, that it's not as if we will be in the dark for weeks as to who won this election. Uh, even if it's a close election, we're going to have a lot of information from places like Florida, Texas, North Carolina, Maine, New Hampshire on election night. And so we'll be able to make a good guess as to whether someone clearly won this election or whether we're in one of those meltdown scenarios. Can you can you specifically give an example from one of those states, maybe Florida, because I think you delved into that most deeply in the piece about what we, what maybe the fears are and why those fears are perhaps overblown and what we will know about Florida on election night. So the Florida has a bad history on election night. <laughs> I remember 2000. So the meltdown scenario that everybody has in mind is that we will not know who won on election day or election night uh, because we'll have so many absentee ballots that are outstanding and those will be determinative of the outcome. And so then we, it'll be left up to the lawyers over the succeeding weeks to argue about those absentee ballots uh, and, and you know the president will claim fraud and then there'll be a debate about that. But actually, there are some states like Florida that begin processing their absentee ballots three weeks before the election. And so we should have most of the ballots, and when I say most, I mean well over 95% of the ballots from Florida uh, by Wednesday morning counted. And as a result of that, we can make some inferences, not only as to who won Florida, but how Biden and Trump are doing around the country. It's not as if we will uh, just be guessing as to the state of play uh, come Wednesday morning. We'll have a lot of information from a lot of states. I mean, we'll have well over 100 million ballots that will probably have been counted by uh, Wednesday morning. And so we'll have a good guess as to who's doing well in which parts of the country. I really liked this line in your piece, Nate, the media are right to brace the public for a week or more of counting, but preaching patience is different from predicting chaos. So as you're looking ahead, um, the states I'm the most worried about, I think, from following your work are Michigan, Wisconsin, and especially Pennsylvania, because I think I'm right that they are not going to count their mail-in ballots before election day. So how much does that matter? I mean, if Florida is clear and decided, and I guess especially if Biden wins, then that would send a strong signal. Ohio will also count early. But if Trump wins Florida and Ohio, and we don't know the results in those other three swing states, and maybe Arizona, like, what does that mean? Are there places we can look in those states that will indicate what happened? Who won? So there Two things. First of all, if we have the same election in 2020 that we had in 2016, then we're in for the long haul because that 
election came down to Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan, and it were, these were small margins in each of those states. And so uh, absentee ballots would clearly be outcome determinative, and then we would have the expected uh, you know, litigation and arguing over those ballots. Um, but as you said, it's not as if we will know nothing about those states, either on election night or shortly thereafter. And so we'll have some results from some counties. And one of the most important things that I think the media can do is to not just simply report the results, but in the fully reported counties to compare how Trump is doing in 2020 to 2016, uh, because that'll give us an indication as to how similar the result is going to be to the 2016 election and whether he is doing as well or better or worse. Certainly by Wednesday morning, we will have most of Michigan that will probably be reporting. We will have some counties probably in, in the middle of Pennsylvania. Philadelphia is still probably going to be quite late uh, and some counties in Wisconsin. So, so we won't have to wait a week before before we have any news from those uh, counties, we'll have a good idea of, of sort of who's winning that state. And Nate, let me see if I can misinterpret what you're saying or get it right so you can affirm it. So if you, you talk about Berks County, Pennsylvania, so the thing people should watch for is counties, not just whether they're going for one candidate or another, but if several counties in which Donald Trump won by 10 points in 2016, he's only winning by three points in 2020, and it's many different counties across the state, even if the results aren't in for the state, you can't write a narrative of fraud when you have the same smaller margins in all the places you would expect him to run big across the state. In terms of making those early inferences, is that the kind of thing you're talking about? That's right. So, so first, you couldn't make an inference of fraud. But secondly, we also have to make sure that the media doesn't hold back that information when claims of fraud are made. So that, and, and normally, when we think of how reports are done on election night, we think of like percent of precincts reporting as the, the, the way that we look at it. That's a mistake, uh, as well as just reporting the data as it comes in. It's because the president is going to get most of the in-person votes on election day. If you simply report those votes uh, as they come in, then it's going to lead to what we call a red mirage, right? So that, that it looks like the Republicans are winning on election night, and then that would be followed by a blue shift, which is uh, the uh, as the absentee ballots come in. But the key is to report how the president, and for that matter, how Biden is doing in fully reported or nearly fully reported counties as compared to 2016 to see whether there's a shift uh, from, you know, who won four years ago. Actually, I want two questions here. One is, do you get the, do you get I the, want three. I got four. Yeah, I, got, I know. You took I two questions the first time. I didn't just follow up because I'm following <laughs> the damn norms. <laughs> well, Sucker. we know how well that's, that's gone for everybody. <laughs> I'm going to follow up your question, John, which is, okay. which is, uh, uh, do you get the sense that the media and is aware that of the behavior? Have they been trained enough to know that this is how they should behave, or do you get the sense that that oh no, they're going to be reporting, you know, the, 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 in this half-assed way? Uh, as they have perhaps in elections past. Especially on CBS, well, well, it's going to be super half-assed. Is, is, is there anybody from CBS here who could maybe be <laughs> active on election night who could take this message to them? Uh, I, I think that, no, I don't think they've made the transition yet. This is our next op-ed, actually, is how to report the results. Um, because 
it, you know, everybody follows the lead of the Associated Press in general, and uh, the Associated Press is going to be, as I understand it, reporting out results, but they're going to take the, the, sta- the same approach that they have historically, which is that they're going to, you know, wait to do a call on election night base or, or the day after or the week after based on the evidence that they have from um, the both the exit polls and, of course, uh, and mostly the actual results. Uh, but I have not seen uh, any change yet uh, among the decision desks or the networks that they are going to uh, follow this lead. But I'm, I'm confident that they're going to do something different. The reason we wrote that op-ed is because the thing that I worry about is that they are, there's going to be an information void in the 24 hours or 48 hours after the election, which will be filled by disinformation and false claims of victory. And so because the message has been sent that the media needs to hold back and wait till they really know who the winner is, uh, that then I'm, I'm concerned that that just allows the bad actors to be the most amplified voices. All right, I'll just take one question. Sorry. <laughs> That, that was a long answer. <laughs> Sorry. No, that was a good answer. So I want to talk a little bit about litigation. Um, I mean, we are all hoping this won't happen. But if there is a lot of contestation going on in one or more of these swing states, do we have to worry about whether the counting can be completed in time for the state to make the safe harbor of December 8th for reporting their electors? The the. Statute says that you have to have your process in place and completed by December 8th of this year, okay? And so if you have selected your electors by uh, December 8th, then that will be the presumptive slate that should be taken as the legitimate slate uh, from the state when the House of Representatives uh, sort of looks at the ballots on uh, January 6th. Um, One of the concerns and I'm now channeling uh, another law professor, Jed Sugarman, is that you could just gum up the works and not finish the counting of the mail-in ballots because they can be challenged individually and that that in itself could derail the count in a key state. Well, that strategy and that scenario is certainly out there. Uh, I think it's unlikely. I, we have, I mean, the states are prepared for this, and I put sort of quotes around prepared, which is that they have recount processes and they have, uh, you know, laws in place to deal with contestation. Uh, and so while it, you know, maybe that we won't have all the ballots counted, we'll have enough of them counted by uh, the safe harbor deadline of the Electoral Count Act that we will, you know, have a, a sense as to who won each one of the states. But there are lots of different ways that the candidates could delay things. Uh, they can challenge voters uh, and their eligibility. They can challenge the ballots uh, before they are counted, for example, challenging signatures on absentee ballots or whether they were late or not. Uh, then they can, of course, challenge uh, the count and contest uh, the outcome, uh, which is what we saw in 2000 in Bush versus Gore. And you may remember in that uh, situation that we also had sort of extra legal means. There was the famous Brooks Brothers riot outside the Miami-Dade County Canvassing Board, uh, where you had sort of you know a band of uh, folks that were supporting President Bush that were disrupting the count. And you could think that those kinds of actions might be more likely this time around. And let alone the fact that that President Trump and Donald Trump Jr. has asked people to enlist in a poll-observing force, right, that would go into the polling places. So, I mean, the the point is that there are lots of ways to mess with the election infrastructure that could delay things and could lead to litigation. 
And Nick, can you just on that point, um, help people understand the difference between poll watchers, which I understand it are a normal and healthy part of our functioning democracy, and what Don Jr. and the president are encouraging uh, with respect to people, you know, kind of, quote unquote, monitoring the voting and stopping suspicious looking people? Well, that's right. There's a there's a fine but important line between observation and intimidation. And so you have people who are perfectly entitled to make sure that, you know, there's not fraud going on in the polling place and that people are fairly being uh, treated. I mean, if you go back and think about how, you know, the NAACP wants to observe the polls in, in the South in order to make sure, you know, historically that African-Americans weren't disenfranchised and the like. Uh, but then, of course, if you have armies of people who are trying to look over the shoulders of voters as they vote or to question the eligibility of every voter as he or she comes in, well, that's, uh, um, you know, that moves from observation to intimidation. Now, Pennsylvania, like other states, have laws about what is a sort of suitable election observer. Uh, And so sometimes they are, you know, pre-authorized and appointed uh, uh, by the parties. And and so you know who is an official election observer. And sometimes they have to be from the precinct, which could make a real difference in cities like Philadelphia. Yeah, well, not only that, we actually have the Pennsylvania Supreme Court um, issuing a decision, uh, now it's about two weeks ago, saying that election observers, uh, that the law in Pennsylvania is upheld, uh, that election observers have to live in the the county in which they're going to be observing. Can I just jump in here and quickly ask about Arizona? Because you mentioned that Florida starts 22 days before the election and counting. I think Arizona states 18 or something. Is Arizona another one of those states that we should keep an eye on in terms of having been through this enough before that that they might have a kind of durable count from which we can draw conclusions election night? Well, we will see. I actually was uh, had the, the head of elections for Maricopa County talk to my class the other day. And we, <laughs> we, we, we investigated this. Um, it's Maricopa County, Phoenix. Just that's for Phoenix, yeah. right? Okay. So, which is ends up being eighty well percent of the vote third. or something. Yeah, 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 a huge amount of the, the vote. And he said, "Look, we're going to have to be patient." I actually think Arizona will take a longer time than um, some of the other states that we're, we're talking about. Uh, and so we should not expect to have results uh, from Arizona in the 48 hours afterwards unless uh, there's, you know, a, a considerable victory. Do you, do you get any sense that are there any of the swing states where the officials who are supervising election are in fact vulnerable to being deeply swayed by some of the arguments that Trump is making and, and could really distort how the election is carried out or how the vote count is carried out in such a way that people in that state should worry? Well, one of the good things about sort of our situation right now, as compared to, say, four years ago uh, or even eight years ago, is that in most of the battleground states, we have divided government, right? So that in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, you have Democratic governors, and you have uh, Republican legislatures, and you actually have Democratic attorney generals in most of those states and Democratic secretaries of state, so that there is some kind of counterbalance to uh, what would be sort of overexertions of federal authority or other manipulations of the process. Similarly, as you go down to the local level, and I can't sort of stress this enough, these issues do not have the same partisan valence as they do at the national level. So if you talk to local election officials, as I've been doing over the last six months, uh, 
you know, issues like vote by mail are not controversial among Republican election officials at the local level. Uh, and so they just want to, you know, process this, these ballots and get people so that there aren't, aren't long lines in the polling place. Uh, so, so that's a long answer to saying that I don't think the local officials are going to be swayed by a lot of these uh, issues or, or a lot of these forces. There are situations in which state officials might be because the secretary of states are naturally going to be a little more political than the local officials. But we do have checks and balances in most of the battleground states. What are you advising people about making plans to vote? Do you think that voting in person early um, is better if you live in a state that does that? Because then your ballot could actually be counted early and would not be part of this later wave of ballot counting. Do you think that people should feel fine about voting by mail? Does it just depend where you live? How are you supposed to decide that? Well, I do think that voting early in person is the best thing for people to do. And the, and the reason I believe that is because if you vote early in person, that ends up putting the least stress on election administrators because it means that those votes have been banked early and there's been no issue of uh, transmission or chain of custody uh, through the mail and the like. But whatever you do, you need to vote early. If you're voting by mail, you need to turn it in right now. If you're voting uh, early, go to a polling place uh, in person. Uh, and then if you're voting on election day, try to go in the off hours, which would be in the middle of the day instead of when there's the rush at the beginning of the day or at the end. Nate, um, tell me what I should think or not think at all about the Purcell Doctrine. Um, is that does... Um, Whoa. Awesome! Woo! I have no idea go what's being John said. Dickerson. Well, I'm just going to let Nate, let Nate explain it so I don't <laughs> confuse people, and then he has to unconfuse them. Not to be confused with the Persily Doctrine, is that right? Yeah. Right, so, uh, the, so the Purcell Doctrine... Uh, stands for the proposition and comes from a you know, case actually out of Arizona, uh, the Purcell case, which says that, you know, last minute changes to election law uh, should not be allowed, uh, whether those are made by the courts or whether they're made by uh, state actors. And so if in the next month we have a local court that makes a radical change to election law, uh, the Purcell doctrine would suggest that on appeal that the court might stay that and allow the process to work itself out. And the reason that that doctrine exists is because one of the most important things when it comes to election administration is to have settled expectations. And while the Democrats, for example, have won a lot of important voting rights victories in the last few weeks in court, if you have the courts going back and forth and there's sort of uncertainty as to what the rules are, that's the worst case scenario. Uh, and Wisconsin I do, primary in April 2020. Well, that's right. And, and, and uh, you know, we're, we could be there pretty soon in Pennsylvania, frankly, because the uh, Republicans have now appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's decision there dealing with issues like deadlines and the like. And so uh, the most important thing is we actually have rules in place. And so then the parties and campaigns can... Uh, uh, sort of work around them. Uh, and, and so, you know, there's a point at which in the next week or two, the music needs to stop and that we, we need to have the rules uh, set for how the candidates and campaigns are going to run. Nate Persley is the McClatchy Professor of Law at Stanford Law School. Nate, thank you so much. This was really, really interesting and useful. And I hope maybe you can come back as we're even closer to Election Day to give us a little bit more update. You bet. Thank you. Barring a remarkable turn of events, Amy Coney Barrett will be a Supreme Court justice. She will take the seat formerly held by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. 
and solidifying what was already a pretty solid conservative majority on the Supreme Court. Republicans have the votes to approve her. John, what ways can Democrats gum up this process or slow the process? And can they slow it down enough to push the vote past the election? I've heard we've heard about these two hour rule for committee meetings. You can delay a committee vote by a week, various other things. How much of those can they do? Will they do? And how much will it matter? Nothing happens in the Senate for um, without a quorum. So you can do a quorum call. You can deny recess. You can. Um, there are a whole bunch of procedural things they could do to try to delay. The problem is um, they have to decide how much to push and then how much they would lose, you know, potentially lose some somebody like Joe Manchin in the court of public opinion. And then the question is, what's the goal? Because they're going to lose. So is the goal to kick the vote till after the election? Or is it to just make enough of a stink that you pay, that you show your important constituencies, which care about the, the issues that uh, um, Barrett is on the other side of, that you show them you're, you know, you're at least working hard to try to, like, be concerned in public. Um, and I don't know what the choice will be there. But I think... It, Based on my reading of everything, there's not there's there's nothing they can do. Um, and so then it's just a question of timing. Emily, should Democrats in the Senate meet with her? Should they show up to question her? Should they be at the hearing, given what happened with Merrick Garland? So I find myself unable to care very much about any of this. I don't care at all whether they meet with her. I know, like, seriously, it just doesn't matter in the end. Like, I think they need to do something to demonstrate to their base that this is not normal. Um, not because confirming a justice before an election is not normal, but because the Republicans said that was not normal with Merrick Garland and this is a reversal. Beyond that, I just don't think it matters very much. I don't think it matters whether they meet with her. The questioning her, I actually think there is some value in challenging her and getting her on the record in the hearings. And so I don't really think the idea that they shouldn't show up is the way that they should demonstrate that they think a norm is being violated here. And and I'd like to, based on what Emily said, amend my um, response, which is that there is a presidential election year benefit that comes from using the heat of um, Supreme Court nominations to talk about the Affordable Care Act, both with respect to Emily's point about questioning and also with the electoral benefit that gives Democrats in the presidential election. If the Democrats are able to use this whole process to create a huge national debate about Healthcare and the Affordable Care Act, I think that serves their um, larger electoral presidential benefits. And by the way, also works with respect to the court, too, in a process where they have limited leverage. So she's obviously like been an excellent professor. She gets really great ratings from her students. She's smart. She's well liked by her students. Uh, yeah, you know, she seems to be a, like a, you know, but she's like a human being who seems to have led a good life. She has firm commitments. She is a woman of strong faith, obviously. She's uh, She adopted I, two kids. She adopted cool. two kids. That's a very good thing to do. But um, I personally, like, I, I don't hold, I don't have much to say about her views. Um, I cannot stand the way the Supreme Court has become this 
this home just for people who are law professors who basically live in this incredibly rarefied world. And she is yet another one. With Brett Kavanaugh, we had a, like a tiny reprieve from it because Brett Kavanaugh did spend a little bit of his life in more in the humdrum and give and take of politics in, in the Bush White House and in the Ken Starr's office. But basically, all we're getting are these lawyers who are either just like extremely specific appellate lawyers like John Roberts or law professors. And where are the where are the politicians? Where are the people who've lived? Where are the people who've like been criminal defense attorneys? Where are the people who've who've like had to run for office? Like where are the Sandra Day O'Connors? Where's the where are the Earl Warrens? It's just it it just is tiresome to have a, a court that is simply made up of people who come from a, this tiny little cabal and where all you ever do is talk about legal theory with other legal theorists. Yes, it's very insular. Uh, I think that's absolutely right. One thing that's interesting about uh, Judge Barrett is I would argue that we know more about her views on um, the controversial issues than we've known about the last bunch of nominees. Um, She has been, she's on the record about um, being much more willing to overturn past decisions the court has made than other justices were at their hearings. I mean, Justice Thomas has taken this position that basically, if you are a judge who professes to interpret the Constitution based on its original meaning, and you think there's a decision that's not in line with that, then you just overturn it. I mean, this is not a consistently upheld principle because there are these huge bodies of case law in um, the American courts that conservatives also like that have nothing to do with the original meaning of the Constitution. I'm thinking of things like unlimited donations for corporations based on the First Amendment on the conservative side or Brown versus Board of Education um, on the liberal side and or at the time unanimous, actually. Uh, And so it's not a consistently held principle, but the idea that Barrett is really willing to be so um, clear about overturning precedent, of course, has big implications for Roe versus Wade and lots of other areas of law that involve like the role of the federal government and how federal agencies write regulations, um, how Congress legislates. So I think that stuff is a big deal. And I hope we get Yes, attention to the Affordable Care Act, because she's also on the record as having been totally skeptical of Chief Justice John Roberts' rationale for upholding its constitutionality a few years ago. And we have another Affordable Care Act case on the docket in November, not to do with the Constitution, but really important for whether that law continues or not. And then we have Second Amendment issues with um, gun rights that she's on the record, like in which she seems much more willing to strike down state and local gun laws than even Justice Scalia was in writing the majority opinion in Heller that started us down this road of an individual right to bear arms in the Second Amendment. There's just a lot of actual legal fodder. And normally nominees kind of dance around that at these hearings. And maybe she'll do that too. But because there are these clear statements, it could actually be more of a debate. Emily, another question for you around that, which is that uh, former judge, uh, what is it, Michael McConnell? Yeah. Wrote about Barrett that how could we, you know, this is not going to be a big deal for the court. It's not going to tip the court in any direction. No reason to think that she's likely to overturn Roe. Uh, I mean, he's a conservative judge, former conservative, ju- conservative former judge. But is there any reason to think that she would not be a fifth vote to overturn Roe? No, I really struggled with that piece because 
Um, we are talking about a very conservative replacement for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was one of the chief liberals on the court. And so there is just a big switch going on. It's not like for like, it's opposite for opposite. And it is true that there is already a fairly solid conservative majority on the court. It is also true that in a few key cases, Chief Justice John Roberts has kind of looked for some sort of like ballast in the middle as a swing voter. He's not a moderate, but he's not willing to go as far and as fast as the other four conservatives have been in the last two terms. And there's no reason to think Barrett is going to join him there. She is absolutely like the Federalist Society's choice, The this arch-conservative group that has been incredibly successful at grooming judges for the Supreme Court. Like, she's their person. So I just literally don't understand yeah. that argument. I feel like it's just gaslighting. Yeah, did you hear the interview with the head of the Susan B. Anthony, what is it called, the Susan B. Anthony List? Fund, I the think. The Susan B. Anthony Maybe. Fund, which is this strongly anti-abortion group, which is dedicated to getting judges on the bench who will overturn Roe and and the head of that organization, who was so impressive and so smart and persuasive and was a great guest, guest on The Daily. But she said, you know, Judge, Judge Barrett is our top choice. I mean, they, they have picked her out because they are pretty sure that she is a vote to do this thing that they long to do. Um, John, I just want to hit the politics of this for a second. When we uh, talked about Barrett's nomination or about Ginsburg's death the other day, originally before, I guess, before Barrett was nominated, um, we were unclear about whether this politically helped the president and shook up the presidential campaign at all. And was it going to galvanize conservatives and maybe help his voter turnout operation? Do you have any sense about whether it's having any effect on the race, either helping Biden, helping Trump, uh, animating voters on either side? I don't know. There is some evidence that it's I mean, certainly kicked up uh, fundraising for the Democrats, for sure. I mean, there's and there's evidence in the polling that the president that the country would like the decision to be made by the next president. But I don't think there's a lot of evidence this is going to be an animating issue for people who are otherwise undecided by the time they vote. What I think it does do is leave the opportunity, uh, leave a potential option open still for either successful reaction or 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 a, a bad overreaction by the opponents. So what would successful action look like we talked about with the Affordable Care Act, which is to use the public spectacle and 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 abortion and other issues that people think are electorally beneficial for the, the Democrats to successfully use the public spectacle of the nomination to drive home a couple, you know, a couple of key and important things that mobilize their voters and also set the choice for the presidential election. That's the successful way to do it. The unsuccessful way to do it is to um, to take the bait, essentially, from Republicans who are trying to turn this into an anti-Catholic, anti-woman, or otherwise. That isn't to say that Republicans aren't going to try to use it for those purposes in the same way they, they've used other instances, but it's to um, give energy to their effort to bait Democrats, um, which will be interesting. I really wonder, in the end, whether, um, and I think I said this before, whether people think they're not going to, you know, they've gotten all they need to get out of Donald Trump in terms of three seats on the court, like whether this actually diminishes the the obsession, not among the people who are constantly obsessed with the court. Three is not enough. But uh, I, I could totally see a case in which, you know, the fu- the promise of future court seats is more powerful than actually having delivered a court seat. The uh, fi- final point, which maybe is I don't even know why I make this, but 
It just really interests me that we have this extraordinary fact that if Barrett is appointed, she will be a Catholic justice replacing a Jewish justice. She would be the sixth Catholic justice in this Supreme Court. Gorsuch, who is the only justice who is neither Catholic nor Jewish, was in fact raised Catholic. And if you look, there have been only 14 Catholic justices in the entire Supreme Court's history and only eight Jewish justices in the entire Supreme Court history. And so there are, you know, six of those justices would be sitting now, six of the 14 or 15, if, if Barrett is appointed, would be sitting currently. And it's extraordinary. And I guess it has must have something to do with, like, the their very strong Catholic and Jewish legal traditions that must somehow help spur this. But I, I mean, I wonder if you've thought about this at all, Emily, why there is this incredible disproportionality of Jews and Catholics at the highest levels of American legal system. I mean, I agree. It's striking. I don't really know what the explanation for it is, honestly. Um, and I'm not sure how much I think it matters. I don't know that it matters, I, but it's, it is, I think it's really remarkable. I mean, I think it has to do with they, they're really, really strong legal well, and they're Catholic, like, like very, really strong Catholic law schools that have a kind of Catholic base. Go ahead. Sorry, you were going to say. Well, I was just going to say, I'm now going to talk about the Jews because I know more about them, that like <laughs> Judaism is all about law, right? It's like about legal principles. There's a ton of discussion and commentary about law. I mean, maybe there's some connection there. Um, but yeah. I'm really, yeah, yeah. I'm, maybe you're right. I don't know. John, I think it is you have to add? culturally well, super strong among Jews. And I think I'm. Sorry, John, go ahead. Well, I mean, Catholics are basically judicious, um, wise, restrained, discerning. So it's only natural that they would be in a position of important cultural power. And maybe the, you could be the first. <laughs> um, I think the Catholics, you have, there's so many rules you have to follow, and it's all so complicated. And, and, uh, and 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 there are so many debates right. you can have right. about the tiniest things. So um, right, I mean, think about these two possible. words: Talmudic dispute, Jesuitical. Jesuitical. Like these two yeah. words, which which are when you want to talk about like narrow arguments around very specific issues, which is what the Supreme Court is: Jesuitical, Talmudic. And I one of the things that one of the reasons I love listening to Thomas Merton's conferences with the novices at Gethsemane is that he is the intricacies of the things that he's talking about, which are not often about scripture, but about basically the way monks are supposed to behave and the way um, the, the uh, following St. Benedict's rule. And it's all so intricate. So, you know, it, um, it seems very much like the law, the law in two important ways. One, a lot of different rules, and then also really open to interpretation and application of brain power to, to get it right. Let us go to cocktail chatter when you are having a drink with a Catholic, Jewish, or neither Catholic nor Jewish friend and having a disputatious discussion with them outside this week. What will you be chattering about, Emily Bazelon? Okay. <laughs> I am really fascinated by a new study that is associating laws that require car seats with... Less oh, childbearing. Yes. Did you see this? Yes. 
Isn't this totally interesting? Totally true. So it's like a data set since 1977. It looks at the state year of variation in laws that require child seats. And it shows that after states mandate car seats, there's a lower probability of giving birth. And so basically the theory is that you can't... Oh, it's especially a lower probability of having more than two children. Yes. And the theory is you yes. can't fit more than two yes. car seats in the backseat of a car. Yes. And so there is a disincentive to have a third child because you can't line up the three car seats. And I guess by the time someone's out of the car seat, then it's sort of too late. And the car seat laws have, have gone more extended into more years of childhood. And here's the kicker to this. We estimate that these laws prevented only 57 car crash fatalities of children nationwide in 2017. Simultaneously, they led to a permanent reduction of about 8,000 births in the same year and 145,000 fewer births since 1980. So... That's a really interesting example of trade-offs, right? So you're preventing the death of a relatively small number of actual children, which is totally great. But you're also preventing all these other kids, it looks like, from being born at all. Okay. And so that just changes family But it's not a one-for-one. Like, the death of a child is not the same as the non-birth of a child. It's not like if you'd gotten 58 births, it wouldn't make it up. No, I completely agree. But, like, is there some number at which, like, the future happiness of those potential people matters more? Like, I, you know, I'm aware that there's another argument if you're um, in favor of access to abortion that kind of hovers here. But if you're just thinking about trade-offs and, like, the idea – we have a lot of research showing that American parents wish they had more children than they had, that there's this kind of unfulfilled – potential for more birth happening in the country and yet like you have this clear protection anyway uh, of these born kids which to me always seems totally primary um but i do think it's like just fascinating that you could see that kind of as the as the parent of three children one of the most depressing acts of my entire life was when soon after my third child was born was going to the stupid car dealership and buying a stupid fucking minivan and it was terrible because, like, who wants it? It's awful. It's terrible to drive. They're horrible. They're, there's no, they have, they're, they're unpleasant in every way. A vehicle can be unpleasant. Uh, yeah, alienating. So, there you go. John, what's your chatter? I'm just, uh, re- I'm just recovering from the contusions you've just uh, laid out there on the minivan. I find them s- the sleek conveyance through which to go through modern life. Um it's like the car, it's like the sweatpants of cars, of sweatpants of vehicles, the sweatpants without a drawstring of vehicles. Um, anyway, uh, my chatter is about um, a wonderful, wonderful British murder drama called um, McDonald and Dodds, which I came upon when I was in quarantine before the debate, uh, you know, just sitting in the hotel room on Saturday night, and I discovered it, and it was such a joy. It's about a London detective who comes to Bath and basically gets partnered up with a um, superintendent who is kind of, they're trying to shove out and who's late in his career. And it's just great. They're doing a second season. Um, But the acting by Talagovea, who plays the woman detective from London, and then Jason Watkins, who plays the quiet, trying to be forced out detective, uh, just a delight. So for people looking for diversions and the and the drone shots of Bath don't hurt either. Um, it's just a lovely little uh, it's a lovely show. 
That is and, cool. and good drama. Oh, and the title again is McDonald and Dodds. Just added it, added it to my list. Uh, my chatter is at about ama- an amazing story from New Orleans, which I think was done by Channel 4 News, a local news station there, but it may have been done by others. I'm not sure. And Channel 4, your your website is so annoying that I can't actually have the link up because it's constantly autoplaying video, so fix that. But it is about one of the craziest scams I've ever heard of. So there's this well-known scam in insurance where people will, lawyers or, or, or people will arrange to get themselves hit by a car in order to make an insurance claim against the driver who hit them. In New Orleans, they have, like, they've taken this, multiplied it, put it on steroids, which is there, there was a scheme for people to go get themselves hit by 18 wheelers and other big trucks. They would drive on a particular stretch of highway in Eastern New Orleans and get themselves hit, cause an accident where they would get themselves hit by an 18 wheeler and then make a, a medical claim. And there seems to be an, a scheme with, with a sort of medical adjuster and then a lawyer who was going to bring the cases and the medical adjuster and the lawyer are a couple. The lawyer is herself a former stunt woman. Her ads are wild. Her like ads on TV are amazing. But there were a huge number of these cases where people just are driving on cars and suddenly they're hit by an 18-wheeler and suddenly they're making a claim to get hundreds of thousands of dollars for their for their medical, the injuries that have been caused to them. And it's just a really wild story. And it was uncovered in part because what they noticed was that in these accidents where people were getting hit by these 18-wheelers, there would be two or three or four people in the car. And when they looked at the average number of people in the car, it would be like 2.6 people on average would be in these cars. And that was so statistically anomalous because, in fact, almost nobody drives in groups. Like people, the average number of people in most accidents is about 1.2 because most people are driving alone. And the fact that there were these groups of people who were constantly getting hit by 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 these trucks made them think like, oh, this is a this is a, a scam because they're loading up the car. So more people will get injured. More people will be able to make these medical claims. Um, it's incredible story. Makes you think New Orleans is even weirder than you thought. Listeners, you have tweeted great chatter to us at at Slate Gabfest, And please keep them coming. And this week we have something from Megan Murray at at MK Murray 9. And it's a about a story from Alec McGillis in the New Yorker, the students left behind by remote learning. Emily, you can say a little bit about this story. I thought this was such a well-reported and necessary piece of journalism. Um, I've been feeling like we are not seeing all these kids who are not participating in school because it's remote. They're at home. They are having trouble fully participating or sometimes participating at all. And I think Alec did an amazing job of showing what that's like for the life of one Baltimore student and also trying to explain like why this is happening and why cities like my city where coronavirus rates are really low are not having in-person school. The kind of political resistance to that, what it's based on, how much the fears that are behind it of coronavirus are justified, how much they have to do with politics, either a response to President Trump's irresponsible call for reopening everywhere or just like local politics. Um, So I really, really recommend this piece in The New Yorker. I thought Alec did an amazing job. That is our show for today. Dear ones, the... Gabfest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. 
Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Podcast. June Thomas, managing producer. Alicia Montgomery, executive producer. Please follow us on Twitter at at SlateGabFest and tweet chatter to us. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I am, in fact, David Plotz. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Uh, the Trump tax story got us thinking uh, one of the things that seems to be going on with Trump's businesses, possibly, is that he has, with his golf courses and some of his hotels, he is running them at an enormous loss every year. And those losses are being used to defray taxes, but they just seem to be really poorly run as businesses. And my thought is that Trump really loves golf. He, he genuinely loves golf. I think it, it is his, clearly his favorite physical activity, and he just is obsessed with it and thinks about it a lot, plays it a ton. And I bet he runs, he loves owning golf courses, and golf courses is a place where he can schmooze. And so the fact that he's losing money on them may not matter to him that much, but it, it got us thinking, like, what if, you, if we had enough money that we could be running tax dodges with our own businesses to lose money on them, what would they be? And uh, I have a bunch of thoughts on this, but I wonder if you guys have decided what what you would like to lose money on, what great business, uh, what terrible business you'd like to have that would be emotionally or intellectually fulfilling. Ecotourism. Specifically, I want to own a small, Ooh, good one. like, treehouse kind of place where you can, like, you're in the middle of some beautiful, magical forest, and you get to stay in a treehouse, and there are, like very um lovely uh guided tours that are um you could like go pick mushrooms or find cool berries and it's all very tasteful and artful that is and i get to go live there of course as much as i want yes and also i want water to be nearby preferably a lake where i could swim a Uh lot but also near the ocean so that you could have both love it emily can i I come yeah yeah you can come can i to set the terms right is this for our own personal uh aggrandizement or because yes. or, or to help the great because you could imagine just forming a country a, a company and and taking everybody you know who's uninsured and putting them on the payrolls to insure them and that that would do the greatest good f- with your s- swindling but this is for personal i like that earnest answer john but is i'm trying that. to okay Speaks well, well then i'll go you with that. that that even entered your yeah, brain that's a, i was that's thinking a great one that's a great terms. one what does your right. what does your non-business do oh uh, well, I guess gar- be- garbage hauling in New Jersey. No. Yeah. How about it makes apple cider donuts? Okay, it makes apple cider donuts. You see, Gabfest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com/gabfestplus to become a Slate Plus member today. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington D.C. On Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. 
And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 